This is the Crime Juicy Cocktail Hour. I'm Krista. I'm Becca. I'm Carrie Ann. We're here to bring you all the juice on everything true crime, cults, and controversy. Snuggle up and get your juice. Here we go. Hell yeah. Tonight we're going to be talking about a sensitive subject that is serial killers and mental illness. Becca's going to do us a summary on the subject so that we can kind of have a jumping off point for tonight because we've got a lot to talk about. We do. It's an interesting topic and it continues to get more murky and also more complex as we start to see more and more functional brain imaging scans to see what the decision-making process functionally looks like in the brain. So just a disclaimer that having a mental illness does not make someone violent. There's plenty of people with all kinds of mental illness that don't hurt others, that don't like behave in ways that harm others, that aren't criminal. We don't want to give the idea that a diagnosis dooms you to be a terrible person because that's 100% not true. What we're talking about tonight is the legal definition of insanity and what that means in terms of how to have an insanity defense. Basically, like, when did your brain make you do it? When were you out of control? And the interesting thing about the insanity defense is it usually comes in the sentencing phase, not in the litigation phase. It's more of a mitigation, particularly in the context of death penalty cases. And so the legal definition of insanity is when the defendant can't tell the difference between right and wrong, when they're so disconnected from reality, they acted with intent, knowingly and with intent, but they couldn't discern right from wrong or lawful from unlawful at the point in time when they committed the act. Less than 1% of all cases in the U.S. attempt to use insanity as a defense. And of all of those cases, less than 25% are successful. So it's a very, very, very low. It's, it's unusual. Recently, Dr. Joseph Wu, he's a psychiatrist from the University of California, Irvine, has started using PET scans as a forensic tool in criminal cases, often when there's the possibility of a death penalty as a mitigation. Basically, one of the cases that we're going to be looking at tonight is the defense attorneys used an insanity defense and they used Dr. Joseph Wu as an expert witness with his PET scans. Their defense was that the defendant couldn't tell right from wrong because he was a psychopath and that because he was a psychopath, like his brain made him do it and this was a mental illness. The way that this shows up in a brain scan is that there's abnormal communication between the prefrontal cortex of the brain and the amygdala. The prefrontal cortex is the rational verbal part of the brain where the biological experiences of empathy and guilt come from. The amygdala is the gland that regulates fear and anxiety in the brain. When these parts of the brain don't have healthy communication, the process of experiencing empathy or guilt and guilt are not fully developed. Physiologically, people with this brain anomaly don't experience the anxiety and fear components of guilt, nor do they experience the physiological component of empathy. So psychopathy from this clearly has a physiological component, but at the same time, the issue here is that psychopaths can discern the difference between right and wrong, even if 
the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex aren't communicating. There's still that discernment aspect. They just like don't physiologically give a fuck. Because of that, psychopaths are 20 to 25 times more likely to end up in prison than non-psychopaths. It's like a huge percent of the prison population. And it's very difficult to treat psychopathy. There has been pretty much like one instance in which psychopathy was successfully treated and that was using the decompression model and it was conducted at the Mendota Juvenile Treatment Center in 2012 where 300 juvenile subjects who scored a severe on the psychopathy checklist were tested using the decompression model where they were rewarded when they displayed behaviors that were empathetic or compassionate of the and then the subjects were tracked over the next four years only 60 percent of the test group that received the treatment were arrested again this seems like a high number but uh 98 percent of the control group were arrested again so that's like 64 percent versus 98 percent which is definitely significant of the test group subjects were 50 percent less likely to commit a violent crime In the control group, 16 members of the control group committed homicides over the next four years, and not a single member of the test group that did receive the intervention did. The decompression model is an example of something that could work to intervene in psychopaths becoming violent. But of course, the decompression model was people that were identified early and the experiment was carried out in a very controlled atmosphere of the juvenile detention center. We're going to look at some circumstances where the people that we're looking at do you actually thrive in a highly controlled environment? It's going to be an interesting topic tonight because obviously mental illness is huge. With uh, advances in technology, we're able to see what is going on in the brain physiologically. And, you know, if this means that we need to adjust what illegal, at what point are people held responsible for their actions becomes a pretty murky question. It does. The two serial killers that we're going to talk about tonight are Steven Stanko of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and Keith Jesperson of, where is he from? He's in Oregon. In Oregon. And these two serial killers are very near and dear to our hearts. I did a dissertation on Keith. I wrote a banned book about Stanko. And my love of serial killers started with the book about Keith Jesperson called I, the Creation of a Serial Killer. It's, yeah. 2002 it started i spiraled (laughs) thank you keith he taunted the police he taunted he liked the recognition he was mad is why he taunted the police yes that a woman got a man in trouble and thrown in prison Mm -hmm. that's how mad he was that's why he turned himself in you guys in my Mm -hmm. opinion not just mine others as well it was because that girl lied and said her boyfriend did it killed tanya bennett that's and the he, definition of spite. He went like, to jail. Three years to get out of jail even after he confessed. Because yeah. they had spent a ton of money on that case, the police. Uh-huh. And they were livid, dude. He was actually a family man. He has children. He, he yeah. was also a cross-country trucker. Which Wife's name was Rose. I forget what his daughter's name was. Melissa. Yes. Had a huge podcast called Happy Face that I was actually yeah. on a couple episodes. It was really well done. They dug into everything they could. The brain scans, the mm-hmm. the father being a horrible the person. victims, uh, children, and families. It basically boils down to brain damage in some mm-hmm. form. He fell in high school 
from the rope. When you're climbing the rope, uh-huh. got to the top, it broke. He received $50,000. His dad made him spend it on all kinds of other stuff. I think Keith, that's kind of where some of the money came from, from the motorcycle, because everybody was set and he could get a motorcycle. When you listen to Keith, he's very organized, very well thought out process when he's going to talk to you and he can scare the heck out of you just by talking to you he's Mm. scary he's six foot eight he's scarily big was it eight some places it says eight plus becca he started killing at 40 a lot of people don't buy it that's what he's told us he said that he killed up to like 185 people but only like eight of them were confirmed he went on and said i remember him talking about oh i think like eight's the perfect number of people to kill because like if you don't kill at least eight you're not really a serial killer but if you kill more than eight then you've got a problem one of those like serial killers that was like i'm an expert on serial killers you're just like an attention whore he did like the attention but and he also started killing after his family kind of dissolved Tanya Bennett was a waitress at a cafe. She did not have a very high IQ either. No, she was slow. She wasn't stupid or anything, but she wasn't. So he tells her, can we go out to dinner after you get off work? And she says, sure. And says something like, oh, I forgot my wallet at the house. I don't know why she went into the house. And he got her in the house. They started whatever. She was not interested. He had locked the front door. And she told him the wrong thing. She told him to get it over with. And he beat the living shit out of her to where he felt he had to kill her to put her out of her misery. She was his mercy killing. Now, this same experience is reported by a lot of people who are serial killers. That the first one was an accident. I didn't mean for her to fall off the thing or I didn't, you know, there's always some kind of some little excuse what happens after that first kill and what I've talked about with several others is that before you kill somebody, you might think about it or before you rape somebody, you might think about it, mm-hmm. but you don't have the smells. You don't have the color. Like you don't know what the color of blood is until you really see the color of blood, dude. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you might see a little bit. We've seen a little bit, but I mean, a lot of blood is a different color and the smell you don't get that. And so even though you don't think anything is going to change, Oh, I can stop. You now have a new thing in your in your music repertoire. Now you've got the smell of the blood, the color of the blood, the smell of the fear, all these mm-hmm. other new things that you didn't have to, before to fantasize about. It might take you years to act on it, but you would have never had those things mm-hmm. had you not accidentally, quote unquote, mm-hmm. killed someone to smell that smell, to be mm-hmm. in that room, to have that atmosphere around you, the fear the pheromones, there's a thousand things going on that they're recording with their bodies that they don't even know. When they put themselves back in that mindset, they feel it. Jesperson was a good example of that. He did like control. He did. Mm -hmm. He enjoyed it. And then he was a cross country trucker. He was pretty good at it. I mean, he met his deadlines, but he also liked to pick women up along the way, prostitutes, hitchhikers, and he got away with it for so long because he would kill them in one state, keep them in his cab, dump them in another. It's hard, especially if they were a prostitute, because as we, as people have now finally started to realize is that these people aren't usually doing it 
willingly so they're already kind of off the grid and you know not out there and if they do have an id it's probably not the actual person he was smart i guess for him i mean killing people is not a smart thing to do don't do that killing was reactionary because he would be with some women and they survived just fine he didn't do anything to them it was the women who he felt embarrassed him or shunned him or talked back to him in some way there was something that triggered it was almost like part of it was his dad came out and it was his mom he was dealing with you know and rose really didn't know how to handle him his wife she just wasn't into sex either there might be some excuses why he started killing later than others yeah there's definitely proponents on both sides of that issue like you said becca it was 185 that he said maybe but others are like no eight probably but i'm kind of in the middle i don't think he started killing people at just 40 killed too many animals when he was a kid he believed in spirits i had to do some research and i was trying to find out what he was talking about with ghosts in particular for a show and i couldn't find it and the reason why is because he didn't call them ghosts he Mm. called them horses One night, Melissa said, his daughter said that she couldn't sleep. Something was touching her in her room. Mm -hmm. She was under the covers and was grabbing her feet and grabbing her hair. And she'd look up, come around, and she wouldn't see anything. Uh So she went down into the hallway and crawled into, you know, Mm -hmm. a little ball and slept in the hallway outside of her mom and dad's room. Because when she actually went into her mom and dad's room like a normal kid would to go sleep, when she went in there... She had a weird feeling, more weird feeling in that room than she did in her room. So that's why she ended up in the hallway sleeping. The next Mm -hmm. morning, Keith comes out and he finds her on the floor and he's like almost trips over. And he's like, what are you doing there? And she says, there was ghosts last night trying to get me. And he's like, oh, you'll get used to them. So he did have something else talking to him Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. influencing him and his thought processes that was separate. But... There would have to be, because I'm a very, very firm believer that there are external forces that we do not see that do affect our moods, our actions, our thoughts. And, you know, it all just depends on how receptive you are, or as some people would say, like your level of vibration to be able to pick up on those. And maybe he vibrated extremely high. Mm-hmm. Well, and his dad was such a jerk. I mean, the poor kid didn't really have a chance uh-huh. to know how to vibrate high ever. Stanko is a similar case with his dad was in the military and ran like an incredibly tight ship and like nothing was ever good enough to like live up to his expectations. Steven Stanko, you want to give us a little brief rundown on our boyfriend there? Oh, he's an interesting little Oh, Steven. Yes, let's talk about him. So me and Carrie Ann were introduced to the story working on a book about this woman in Myrtle Beach who hired him to be her attorney. He was not an attorney, but he knew his shit. And she ended up becoming the most controversial witness in his murder trial. Basically what happened with Stanko he's born in Guantanamo Bay. He's in a military family. He's got two brothers. One of them got murdered right or died when he was young yes and uh, yes so he's pretty above average like performing in school or whatever and he really really wants to be in like the air force academy like his dad when he graduates high school but he doesn't get in 
And he starts to spiral and like running cons and stealing cars and gets in trouble. Just can't hold down a job because he like would lie about what position he was in, do substandard work, just do manipulative things to like take money from his employee to steal. Isn't he like a con man too? Yeah, just general con man. In 1992, he's in Goose Creek, um, South Carolina, and he meets this woman named Liz. They're working together. They end up in this like tumultuous relationship for four years. So him and the neighbor decide they're going to start a used car lot, and he's working at a used car lot. Now he decides that he's going to sell used cars that he steals from the used car lot that he works for and ends up getting in trouble for a... <laughs> and I, like... <laughs> VIN numbers or anything? Well, he's smart in some ways, but not in others. And his main thing is he would let, he's the king of overstaying his welcome. He'd like pull a con, fuck you over, but then he lives in your house and doesn't leave. Liz comes home and him and the neighbor in the back of a squad car talking to him about these stolen cars. And Liz is like, what the fuck? This is after she paid for a lawyer for white collar crimes. He like pawned stuff from her house, stole checks from her checkbook. He'd do this thing where he'd get fired from a job, but not tell her. He'd get like dressed up for work every day and then come home late at night and then she'd find out that he'd been fired they get into this big blowout fight and he's like i'm leaving for good so she goes to sleep and then she wakes up to him holding this washcloth filled with clorox and 409 over her face kind of gets him off of her a little bit and he like ties her to the toilet and takes a shower and then he's i did some bad things i gotta go and leaves and then she calls the police and he ends up doing eight and a half years of a 10-year sentence for kidnapping and aggravated assault and some concurrent civil charges for the cars he stole. So while he's in prison for like the first time in his adult life, he starts kind of kicking ass. Like he studies law like obsessively. He writes a book about the prison system from the inside with these two experts in criminology and sociology. So he comes out of prison a published author with all this knowledge and this is in 2004 and he ends up in Myrtle Beach and he's really nervous about being on the outside and expresses this to his brother who's living in North Carolina or I think it's North Carolina. But so he's in Myrtle Beach looking around for like work and stuff and decides he's gonna it's hard with his felony record because he's got like crimes and moral turpitude. He's a registered sex offender. He's got this ankle monitor. So he's like, I'm going to write my next book. He goes to the Socasti library where Laura Ling is working and he tells her he's a lawyer. He's writing a book. So it's like all of his lies are based in like a kernel of truth. So that's the kernel of truth that he based it on this break up relationship. And by April, he murders her. Basically, he's pretends to be a lawyer and she refers people to him because she believes him. And one of those people was the per- the co-author that me and Carrie Ann were working with who was trying to sue a doctor that assaulted her for medical malpractice. So the judge that presided over the first trial that she had, Stanko added him to the witness list when he was playing lawyer. And for the most part, I mean, he was like filing papers. He was giving her like legal advice, but he would always be like, oh, my office is under construction. Let's meet in your yard or just weird shit like that. And just kind of be like, oh, I'm in like Charlotte or Charleston. And then he'd like show up at her house like 15 minutes later, just kind of offsetting just to like let her know that he could be anywhere. And then 
it, so it, it got really, really weird. And she was something's up with my fucking lawyer, but he was doing a better job than anyone else she'd worked with. So nobody else would do anything. Right. So he's doing this lawsuit. And part of this lawsuit is a bit of a cover up. Basically, the doctor that assaulted her, his brother was working for the county solicitor, which is another word for the district attorney. So there was some like sketchy business going on there. And she'd accidentally been given records, depositions, forms and stuff from her former lawyer that she wasn't supposed to have. Stanko had these and he basically was like, I can use these to blackmail my parole officers and the people that I'm responsible to. Meanwhile, he's on parole pretending to be a lawyer. And his girlfriend catches on and they have this big blowout fight and then he murders her and rapes and attempts to murder her 15-year-old daughter. He doesn't manage to, but he thinks she's dead. And as soon as he leaves, she calls the cops. But after he does the murder, attempted murder, he goes over to this friend of his's house, who's the 74-year-old man, kills him, steals his car and his gun, goes down to Augusta, Georgia, by way of Columbia, South Carolina, where he like parties and has happy hour. So now he's down in Augusta and he's pretending to be a professional golfer and schmoozing and starts seeing this woman who takes him to church and then they're all looking for him. And he shows up on TV at church and that kind of goes over their heads. He's seeing this woman that he meets down in Augusta and then this, we're looking for this guy. He just killed a ton of people and ran away if anyone has any information. So one of the women, a friend of the woman that he was seeing down in Georgia called her up and was like, oh shit, like, is that your new boyfriend? And she's like, oh no. So she like turned him in and. That was his, you know, his his go of it. <laughs> Basically, what ended up happening is his defense attorney, Bill Diggs, he had two, Gerald Kelly and Bill Diggs. Gerald Kelly's the man. His testimony in the appeals cases, he's just, I love watching him talk. He's such a badass. But Bill Diggs decides to go for a insanity defense, which, as we've learned, is mostly for mitigation. He is now on death row. Steven Sanko is now on death row. His defense attorney was like, I'm going to call in Dr. Wu and have these functional brain scans taken of Stanko, which showed that there was like a lack of communication between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And his thing was basically like, it's not his fault. His brain made him do it. He's a psychopath, you know, like Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy. (laughs) Obviously, that's like not a great defense. He ends up getting convicted and he's sentenced to death. Recently... He had a retrial in 2019, basically, that he didn't have competent counsel because they tried his defense was like, you're a psychopath. And then in 2020, in January, he was granted a retrial based on that. But the thing is, there's kind of a story behind the story here. The judge that presided over his case that sentenced him to death was the same judge that presided over the case of the woman that he was representing when he was pretending to be a lawyer. And he had added this judge's name to the witness list. So the judge was supposed to recuse himself, but he didn't. That's still an issue. Is that correct? It isn't being talked about at all. As soon as I saw that there was a retrial, I was like, oh, that's the thing that they're not saying. His appeal recently denied in August. August? I believe so. Mm. In August... 
of this year, it was denied. I did not know that. I did not know that either. I've been trying to keep track of that. Yeah. The reason he hasn't been executed yet, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. There's Death Row sounds like a fucked up place where it's like, I don't it just it just seems terrible to like have your date changed, just all the shit, you know? Yeah, they've got it good on death row. They get better food. It's quieter. People don't mess with you. There's people that have tried to get on death row on purpose. Just to get a break. Basically, they don't have they didn't have a working electric chair and the company that made one of the chemicals that goes into the lethal injection stopped producing it. There hasn't been the people on death row don't have like a means to be so He's like totally cross eyed. Yeah. Yeah, the way that our our the co author described it is like having shark eyes. Just yeah. really dark eyes where there's like nothing at the bottom of them. Yeah. And, so um, on Post and Carrier, they updated August 20th, 2020. His appeal for, death, for his death sentence field return was denied. He was interviewed, and so was his father. His uh-huh. father was interviewed in that book, and they kind of go back and forth between him and his father in mm-hmm. kind of time lapse. But they don't write it. Someone other. else wrote it. No, right? someone else wrote it. The other thing about the insanity defense, so... In 2019, at the retrial, Dr. Wu came back and said that he was mistaken about psychopathy and that the brain scan showed that there were uh, these um, temporal lobe seizures that he was having, where instead of regular seizure symptoms, it's spacing out and that these seizures can induce uh, psychotic states. But then subsequent studies of TLE and extra TLE showed that these seizures didn't produce new psychopathic tendencies and they didn't exacerbate psychopathic tendencies. He'd be backed into a corner of his own lies and once he couldn't get out of them, he'd lash out violently where it was excuses, 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 and then he'd lash out violently. And that came with when he was conning someone, he'd move in with them or like he wouldn't get away from his mark. It would like lead to him being backed into a corner where he'd lash out violently. With his first attack, He was specifically not charged with attempted murder, and he obviously was attempting to kill her. He told her that, didn't he? He said, I'm gonna kill you. Uh Uh-huh. I'm gonna take a shower like a weirdo, (laughs) like I must be clean. And then somewhere in between the tying to the toilet and the cleaning, he decided, he switched back to, nah. Something about, like, taking a shower just makes it all that much worse, and, like, humming in the shower. Someone's like crying tied to your toilet. Yep. <laughs> That's my normal Tuesday. <laughs> They're everywhere. Yeah. They're everywhere. Compared to some people who end up to be serial killers mm-hmm. or attempted serial killers, their childhood case was screwed up and weird, mean. He beat the mom. I mean, he drank. He would lie. He made Keith take the blame for stuff. Like, they had this trailer court. They were digging this thing out. And his dad hit something and totally screwed up the utilities in this trailer court. And he blames it on Keith. Yeah. Keith has to take the blame. And Keith's a kid. Just mean stuff. Yeah. Um, He was very much as his father's scapegoat. On every chance he got. And his dad was just a jerk. It wasn't normal by any means. No, they weren't living in a hovel with a dirt floor either. No, but other would look at them 
and say, I wish that was mm-hmm. the worst thing that happened to me today. And that everybody processes their traumas differently. Having a military dad could be quite traumatizing. I have a friend who always called her father, sir. Always. I had a grandfather that was a general. Did you guys call him, sir? I didn't. I was the granddaughter, but his name was Walter. I have this picture of him. He looks like the grumpiest old, just surly, just man. They have expectations. Some military people are absolutely batshit crazy, too. Correct. And that's one of the reasons why they join the military, because you can almost kind of get away with being an absolute psychopath in the military. I'm not saying that the military doesn't do great things, but... But there's a lot of serial killers. They're just, you know, and serial killers. There is. There is. And unfortunately, they use war as their reason. There's, I can only imagine all that's going to come out if war ever stops, which it's not going to. But, you know, we'll see what happens. They're odd. Stanko is just weird. He craved the structure. And when he's on the outside, he didn't get it. So as soon as he got out, he was like right back to conning. And it was really interesting because it seemed to them like he was studying to be a serial killer. Yeah. Kind of like I fucked it up the first time and I ended up in jail. I'm not going to fuck this up again. Just obsessively researching serial killers. But none of the interesting killer, right? ones, like all the kind of classic ones, like there were no deep dives. It was just like maybe Bundy and Dahmer and John Wayne Gacy. Yeah, we all know them. They're the three Scrooges on South Park. Becca, wasn't he fascinated by the Green River Killer in particular? Yeah, the Green River Killer was his fave. He really, I think he really wanted to identify with Ted. Gary Ridgway was a big fave of his. But yeah, they were like, it seemed like he was studying to be a serial killer on the notes that he was taking and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, weird, weird stuff. He's an interesting character. It's interesting, again, that people that have covered him try to make him more than what he is. He killed two people. Of all the people that he tried to kill, he killed two successfully. Our co-author, he tried to kill her a lot. So that's another turning point with his relationship and also how he performed in school. Because he, when they talked about him being in school, he was very smart. They pictured him doing great things and doing all of this stuff. Uh-huh. And then there was a huge switch. His brother died and he started taking shit personally. And then failed getting into the navy air force and then spiraled into being an awful fucking con man he had some shining moments he didn't uh, you're like really wanted to be in the military and i think he really wanted to be the shining star of something i don't know what but i feel like that's probably why i kind of feel like he might have had something to do with his brother dying because the brother was the older brother and was the star i'm sure And something happened, I don't know, or at least the family might have thought it. And when people talk about the family, they say that they weren't a very happy family either. They weren't not the normal American whatever you see, Mm -hmm. but just their vibe wasn't very (laughs) vibalicious, you know? Just kind of, okay, like, yeah, and dad, you know, had all say... It was the end, I'll say all. And then you fall down and crazy shit happens. Certain situations where there is a trigger that changes your personality completely and totally. But I do feel like just some people are that way. And some people obviously have better control than others. But I really do feel like some people, I mean, look at all the damn torture devices from the medieval 
<laughs> time. Like, tell me a psychopath did not create that shit. <laughs> like, come on. Like, oh, yeah, no, I'm a God-fearing person, but I'm going to create this thing that I'm going to sit you on and pull your legs down and see how long it takes to cut you in half. Like, it was torture, but don't, you cannot say that some of those people did not have, like, raging boners while they were doing it. <laughs> That's maybe harsh. Those type of people were revered. And there is also something to say about genetics and things being passed down in genetics. It's a very teetering line. And I think it is still, it needs more research. It needs more time. And the justice system does need to catch up to some of it. The big question is, uh, should psychopathy be considered insanity? And should the definition of insanity change? to accommodate brain abnormalities like that. But that's that's also a hard line because if you do clearly know right from wrong. So cold-blooded killing versus hot-blooded killing first. Uh-huh. Like a passion killing, mm-hmm. emotion-driven emotion yeah. so killing. So those two insanities are different. And like we learned from that woman Jane Andrews in England. Yes. That she's not going to stop, I don't think. But they oh, and, oh, no, uh, if she's in love with you, like, you will marry her or she will kill you. And I think the only reason why she hasn't done anything or they are watching her so closely, like with every social worker England has. <laughs> there's like a Jane tracker. It's like a yeah, Doppler. There's a Jane tracker. There's a Doppler. Yeah, so. Well, they watch Carla Homolka, too. She has since changed her name, but they definitely watch her after they saw those tapes. I would. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what was she, on the, I what really they say. I can't believe she got out. Her involvement <laughs> was a little, not a little, a, a lot more than what she depicted. Bitch was horrible. <laughs> about her sofa that her sister wanted then <laughs> but they're watching her too mm-hmm. i think she would do it again if she found the right person i think she would do it again and so yeah. that's not cold-blooded murder that's hot-blooded murders mm-hmm. yeah i think this is a good segue into what doc our friend on the other side said about the ted bundy in the hallway ted bundy's in utah in court and he's getting ready to defend himself He has a psychological assessment that's going to be presented to the court that day. And he's trying to figure out how to win the case that day. So he's in the hall with Doc. And he says to Doc, so, do you really think I killed all those girls? And Dr. Al Carlisle knows that if he says no, that Ted Bundy will go into court and say, Dr. Carlisle just said in the hallway that I was incapable of doing this. If Dr. Carlisle said yes... Ted would go back into court and say, he's prejudiced against me. You have to throw this assessment out. Instead, Al says, I don't know if you killed all those girls, but if you did, I think you'd do it again. That's the gist of it with what we're looking at and what what's considered insanity. There was that one Mendota Juvenile Detention Center instance where there was a successful intervention. And successful intervention means that only 46% committed a violent crime in the future. More, And it's all kind of training these people to associate self-interest with acts of empathy. It's definitely like learning how to... Compassion is a learned thing. It's only learned in the context of it's good for me to show compassion. 
it's got to be altruistic. And I believe that that's, right. that's a really good thought process. We're going to have to go on that on another show because mm-hmm. compassion, if compassion is learned, then that means, you know what, we all are when we start out then. Can we teach a robot to love? Yeah. We can teach it to mimic. It might be in its best favorite. It might be in its best interest to make us love it. So it won't, we won't turn it off. We won't yeah. destroy it. We won't recycle it. Well, and yeah. I think that's a big thing about like why Stephen Stanko did so well. And he was a model prisoner. Great behavior because he didn't want to fuck with anyone. But at the same time, he could see them coming from either side because those <laughs> eyes are really. <laughs> Shark eyes. Dun, dun. Like, oh my god, he's got like eight rows of teeth. They're interesting characters. And another one of the serial killers that I find quite interesting is Albert Fish. He was born in 1924. He is notorious for writing letters about killing his victims. He would swindle people. And convinced them to let him take their children. He wrote a letter to Grace Bud's parents describing how he roasted her behind and continued to eat it for four days. Damn. At the same time, he would punish himself for indulging in carnal sin it for like for it was some weird bible and he was also a satanist but towards himself and he would shove needles in his penis and whip himself you'd give himself penances with whips on his back and his children knew about before the killing stuff like they knew like the weird shit that he did and somehow he had six children and uh-huh. all of the will- women would leave him with those children knowing uh-huh. what like, they're <laughs> like he'll be safe he'll be safe here it's fine but it's like was he just like did he just have some weird stuff going on in his head that at that time they couldn't quite figure out or was he just one of those was that more of a compulsion because then you look at H.H. Holmes and his wasn't a compulsion his was thought out and processed and planned oh my god right he built an entire murder hotel by the age of 25 let's say Albert Fish was schizophrenic okay or had severe ADHD and maybe some weird epilepsy stuff let's say that was going on okay so you have compulsion issues whatever But he was also organized enough to even put ads in the paper to find people to come and work at his farms. You know, like he, some of his things were thought out very, very well. I'm not saying he wasn't disorganized because, I mean, at some point all serial killers get disorganized. It just, I think it's just a natural digression of. That we know of. You know, just. Right. Yeah. And we don't know if they've been able to keep it together. We would love to catch one of those. Yeah, we got some insight into that from Doc as well, where, you know, serial killers, people that do this kind of stuff, like, have a very strict, like, there's a line that they won't cross. It's, like, seems pretty arbitrary, but it's, like, a very strict line for them where it's, like, okay, as long as I, like, don't do this, I'm not a monster. And ultimately, that line gets crossed at some point, and then they start to lose their shit. It's so scary at the same time, because if it if it is as easy as just flipping 
that switch? Like, what does that mean? Beware of boyfriends who pretend to go to work but don't. And yeah. or or if they tell you they're an author, like, cool, look up the book, but yeah. also look at where they were when they wrote the book. <laughs> right. Oh yeah, he wrote a book. What is it about? Okay, he wrote a book about prison. Why did he write a book about prison? Right. <laughs> and being on the inside. Yes. With somebody else. Those are just things I think of. But that's just me. Any closing thoughts? What would be our group assessment of serial killers and mental illness in general? Does it affect the outcome? Or is it simply a switch? And some of these behaviors, I mean, there's a lot of people that's got ADD and ADHD. They're never going to kill anybody. Yeah. No one's actually dead. A lot of mental illnesses we've been talking about kind of are superpowers, you know, in a way, at least in, from our point of view. And so looking at it from that perspective, all serial killers have something wrong with them mentally yeah. that's wrong. But is it a prerequisite? No, because each one has been a different progression. Each one found the path that they wanted to go down. And went down it on their own, by their own free will. Whether their psychopathy drove them to go down that path, that's the question. Is the entity or the the voice the mental illness or Mm -hmm. is it just the trigger was pressed? Like you said, Krista, is it that simple? Let's be honest. We've got people that pop off and kill people that we haven't had any mental illness history on them at all. Not to say that they have it, but... I think a big thing that this sheds light on is the whole, you know, since insanity is often used as a mitigation against the death penalty, it really calls into question the whole, because the idea is that it's cruel and unusual punishment to put someone to death for an act that they couldn't control doing to whatever extent. If you're seeing these functional brain scans that are showing a breakdown of communication between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala or like other things, you are seeing a physiological reason It doesn't make the person any less of a threat to society. It's a knock against the death penalty for sure. Are you going to put someone to death because their brain made them do it? It is a damaged brain. Yeah. Something like that. I mean, so it's not like a, I don't think that a damaged brain is the same thing as a mental illness. Yeah. No. Okay. No. However, it can act in the same way because it's, you know, a damaged brain. And so you really, yeah. really do have to, they, we, they have to dig in there, do some brain scans. I think it's definitely the wave of the future to yeah. try to figure out if that had something to do with it. And we're know. just starting to learn, like brain scans are just starting to become like forensic tools. So it's going to be interesting to see like how deep that rabbit hole goes. And as we learn more and more about the brain. I just thought about this. What about like gang members that have killed multiple people wouldn't you consider them serial killers correct in a way or some the fbi's definition is three or more but i believe two or more yeah because it's cold-blooded if it's cold-blooded if it's not someone you know then that's a cold-blooded murder that's uh, a serial killing if you do more than one so that's two that's a serial killing So then gang member, let's say an enforcer for a gang, whether it be the mafia, the Irish mob, the, you know, the Creo freaking don't mess with the swamp people, enforcers. 
wouldn't they be considered serial killers? And how many of them are just walking around right now? And they are the ones that are probably getting away with it. Yeah, for sure. Because they have backup. Now, a regular lone wolf serial killer is doing it all by himself. Mm-hmm. Gang members, mobs, all that. We've got buddies to help us. But the kills are sanctioned, generally. Yes, you but even still, yeah. wouldn't... Right, they're within, yeah. they're within that code, so I think they can continue to be, like, organized because they're within the code of, like, what's acceptable. Okay, so it's okay I didn't cross that line. I was, can, this is my purpose. Right, so they can, con- like, I'm not a monster, I didn't cross this line, so they can continue to, like, act in an organized way. I'm just Even trying though, to do my, I'm just trying to do my jab here. So, like, what every Nazi said? And people in Rwanda and things like that. Like, there's so many serial killers out there in so many different forms, people. So, is it really? I think it's just the way some people are. And some, sometimes it's useful. Not every sometimes people. you find an outlet for it. Sometimes you don't. Yeah. Well, and know. if Sanko had gotten into the armed forces, he may not have been different, but things may have been different. Yeah, he still might have found some type of thrill of killing people in a weird way, but it being. Within the code of being in the military. That guy in Canada that rode with the queen on our plane and stood by her and everything. And he was raping people and stealing panties and killing them in Canada. He looked fine. That's what reminds me of Stanko a little bit. Maybe if he got in the military, he would have been like that guy. Like, Yeah. I mean, I don't see him not being a con artist and not being like you know, putting himself into situations where he's fucked people over to the point where he can't talk his way out of it and he'll have to lash out violently. Exactly. Well, you know, I mean, even one of my children at one point said, my brain made me do it. And he wasn't wrong. You're not wrong, but you're still in trouble because you, in some capacity, (laughs) do have some control of your brain. So, yes, your brain said, hey, you should do that. Uh Uh-huh. But there's two sides of your brain. Oh my gosh, yeah. Like, there's the side of your brain that's like, let's do this. And then there's the side of your brain where you're like, no, that bitch is crazy. Uh, her. Pump the brakes on that. Let's let's think about it. This needs to be like a cartoon. Like, I'm just imagining like this cartoon drawn with brains. There's the shoulder angels or whatever, but one of them's Jeffrey Dahmer and the other one's Ted Bundy. And Jeffrey's yeah. all like, eat him, eat him, eat him. And Jeff's like, rape him, then eat And like, Dahmer's like, yeah, it's a great idea. And then. You need to have that. Okay. I'm working on it. We'll have to find one person that's a nurse or something who did like mercy killings. Ooh. There's, there's a lot. Or well, what they thought. Like I my favorite ones are the lesbians that thought by killing people it would strengthen their relationship and they'd be together forever. <laughs> they should have just called it what it was, blackmail. But then they <laughs> just really liked it and did it together. <laughs> and was like, are they crazy? Bored Americans. There's that. There's that. Some folks are ornery. There's some folks are ornery. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are on this. So let us know. Did your brain make you do it? Thanks for joining us today, gang. If you like what you hear, leave us a review. Share it with your friends. Go find us on Patreon under Crime Juicy Gang, where you can subscribe and get way more content awesome interviews with awesome people and a little bit more behind the juice so you can see how we get this process done for all of you also see us on instagram and facebook at crime juicy bring your juice